Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 7, Easier Said Than Done, where we will be looking at Chapters 11 and 12 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of proving one's worth. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First, if you hear a droning noise, blame our neighbors. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if it's a vacuum. I don't know if it's the refrigerator that is sitting outside on somebody's porch. I don't know if it's a broken air conditioner but it's annoying. Secondly, I think you know by now that we are covering the wise man's fear and that we are doing so in small chunks through chosen lenses to figure out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll take some time to explore models of practical wisdom within the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Second of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher Daw Books. Third of all, our discussions naturally assume some familiarity with the Kingkiller Chronicle and all of its ancillary materials. I'm not going to go into listing them because if you care, you already know, and if you don't, I don't know why you're listening. And we want to make the introduction longer. Finally, a word to our community. Be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. So now it's time for our 45-second recap. It's my turn this week. Do you have a timer ready? I do not have my phone in here. I was going to be good and not be distracted. All right. Thank you for the use of your phone so that I can punish you later when you mess up. When I mess up. Great. What? We've already got a suggestion from a wonderful patron. You like Danishes? Not with cherries, I don't. You don't know that. If it doesn't have cherries, it's not punishment, now is it? I don't know. If it's a raspberry, it's punishment for me. Anyway, it's my turn here, so let's go ahead and dive into it. Let me know when you're ready. All right. In three, two, one, go. Quoth and Ari share dinner with Elodin, who's dreadfully sorry about the shape she's in. Impressed that Quoth named the girl, Elodin invites him to try giving his naming class a whirl, and his word is no lie. A visit to Lauren later grants Quoth access to the stacks, because he's not a smoldering crater, though patience he lacks. Meanwhile in the fishery, Kilvin makes Quoth aware that selling trinkets as wishery is a crime to raise hairs. On his first day in Elodin's class, Quoth yearns to make hay, though more likely makes himself an ash. No danishes for you this week. That is the plan. Do I have to say ash? I mean, because I could just be referring to a donkey. I might just edit the ash in anyway, because it's funny. Okay. But 31.20 seconds is your time. Yes. And let us continue. All right. So we kick off with Chapter 11, Haven, which starts off with a rendezvous between Quoth and Ari, which gets crashed by Elodin. In the best way possible. What? Um. Anyway, full disclosure, once again, I read this last week and then we didn't record because of course not. But this is still one of my favorite parts of this. So I know what happens, but I am going to relearn as we go. 
so a couple things here. So let's talk about the gifts, because the exchange of gifts is important to Kvoth and Ari. It's part of their ritual. Kvoth provides a bottle of honey beer from Brayden. There's Brayden again. Brayden beer, we've had that a couple times. Well, bread and beer. Which is spelled exactly the same way as our tack-playing friend. You mean Cinder? No, of course not. Yeah, it's totally Cinder. Anyway. <laughs> Kvoth also provides a barley loaf and then smoked salmon, which has a harp in its heart. I'm wondering if that has something to tie into Denna. Huh. That would be really weird connotation. I know. I'm not sure what that means. But there's just echoes, right? True. I love that Ari is like, hello, fish, instead of grossed out. Meanwhile, Ari provides a lavender candle full of happy dreams. So I love this because lavender is one of those calming scents, like the essential oils and aromatherapy and happy dreams because she knows that Kvothe has nightmares and she wants to give him a gift that is sweet and useful. And on that sweet note, she also gives him a gentle kiss on the forehead. It's a gesture of intimacy and friendship and safety. And then finally, she gives him a place to stay in the underthing if it becomes unsafe on the surface. Now, this visit to Ari started, as so many do, with Kvoth going to Apple Court and playing his lute, almost meditatively. And Ari scampering up and saying, I heard you all the way down in vaults. It makes me wonder how far away is Vaults? How many people hear him around the university and either treat it like their own secret little pleasure that they don't want to ruin by mentioning it or that they don't want to tell other people about for fear that it will be stopped. But it's so sonorous and beautiful and magical that to touch it would be to break it. This is probably one of my favorite things about Kvothe and his story. The private time he has with his music and with the joy and just being able to express himself in song. I think there's also something to the way Ari makes Kvothe be present in a situation. When Kvothe is with Ari, he is intently listening to her and responding honestly with intentionality. And he seems to do that with her in a way that he doesn't with most other people. He lets down his guard and he lets himself be vulnerable, which I'm just going to say, you don't have to be a fantasy hero to find that difficult. That is something that is difficult for everybody, and especially in our world where vulnerability is oftentimes discouraged. Having a person with whom you can just be radically yourself, it's a rare gift, and it should be cherished. Speaking of gifts, Kvothe wants to be able to give Ari gifts, and I don't think that Ari is terribly receptive to things. Maybe sometimes she wants things because they're necessary to advance what she wants to do, what actions she wants to perform or 
things she wants to make for others. But I don't think she's too concerned about things like clothing or shoes. Even as Quoth is like, but you need shoes. Which is funny because for so long, Quoth did not have shoes. Which may also be why he appreciates them. I mean, I also think that with Ari, she wants the experiences. So when Quoth gives her a gift, it is not enough for him to simply give her a thing and say, here you go. He makes up sort of these delightful little stories, like for instance, the fish with the harp in its heart. These sort of wondrous things that make them more than just mere practicalities or nourishment. He makes them into things that nourish her imagination. It's sort of like how just purchasing something from a store isn't as exciting as telling someone the story of how you picked something out just for them and what your thought process was that made you say, you know what, that's a Phoenix thing. She would love this. Also, putting thought into something like if you really think that the best option is a gift card or money even, for some people, it's really lovely and nice to receive things from people who care about you. But sometimes those people who care about you don't know exactly what you need. And if they explain that while they could have spent money on like a spa day or some frivolity that you don't feel you need, but you do need money for clothes or if you're a single parent and you want to provide something for your kid, that can go so much further than the gift of an actual item or experience. Well, and in that case, what you're really giving someone is the gift of agency. I am giving you something with generosity and letting you choose how you would like to make use of it. Now, before this can get too much sweeter, Elodin pops out. Turns out Elodin's kind of been keeping tabs on Ari for some time now. We don't know how long. We don't know if Ari was one of his students. He's actually really young, even though my mental image of him is kind of Merlin from The Sword in the Stone from the Disney movie. He ages backwards. That's the thing. Nah, no Benjamin buttoning it here. But that's just what I have in my head. But I know, canonically, he's like, what, 30? He's younger than us. Ah. Okay, let's um, move past that one. Kvothe is initially very defensive of Ari. You can't do this. You can't do that. You have to do this. You have to follow these rules. And obviously this protective streak comes from a place of care and concern. But it also doesn't really give Elodin the chance to prove his worth. It doesn't give Elodin that chance, and it doesn't give Ari the agency that she so very clearly is capable of. Elodin, to his credit, just kind of takes this in stride. He could get really offended that Quoth is trying to dictate things to him, but instead he listens. Also, Ari very clearly knows Elodin. I think she knows all of the masters at the university. I kind of wonder what their relationship is. If it's just a passing acquaintance or if it's something deeper. I also notice how Quoth is telling Elodin, you can't take her to Haven. She won't survive there. It's terrible. And Elodin does not fight him on this at all. Well, no, 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 no. 
He says, do you presume to know my feelings towards Haven? Essentially, Elodin makes no statement that he's going to take her there. But he also says that Haven is a place that some people may need. Before we even get to Kvothe's kind of rounding on Elodin and going, no, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't. There's a little bit of an interaction with the three of them that's kind of tense. Kvothe being cautious and acting as though Ari is an easily frightened deer. And Ari being suspicious, but also kind of defensive over Kvothe. Because Elodin's like, what you doing? And Ari's like, he brought music. You shut up. You didn't bring anything. Who invited you? And Elodin produces a sinus fruit as a gift. I kind of want to know what a sinus fruit is. Because if it's like durian, then this is terrible. But if it's like, you know, a plum. I kind of imagine it's like an orange. I don't know why. Segmented and easily shareable? Yes. And also, it is a fruit that is filled with early morning sunshine. So yeah, maybe some sort of citrus, like grapefruit or, you know, although grapefruit really is not great on its own. I mean, unless you like sour things. Grapefruit really is only tasty if you're actually eating it with a spoon and scooping away from the actual separators of the segments, because that's what actually gives it the really bitter taste. The more you know. Anyway. Ari ducks back into the under thing without really an explanation of what she's going to go do and comes back basically with a picnic blanket, which is super charming. But before this, like the interaction, how protective Kvothe is of Ari is fierce. Like in his discussions with Elodin about whether or not Ari could survive in Haven, Kvothe shakes. He's visibly upset over the mere idea of anyone taking Ari away from her home. He says, they'll stick her in Haven, you of all people. And then Elodin, of course, is a little more complex than that and responds, of all people, I what, Rilark Foth, do you presume to know my feelings towards Haven? And that right there catches Kvoth off guard. At that point, he's just reduced to begging. And we realize that Elodin has maybe a little more situational awareness than he's oftentimes given credit for. Yeah, I actually think that he's quite good at his spot checks and his perception. And his insight. Elodin gets away with things mostly because he is keenly aware of the effect that his actions have, and he is also well aware of just exactly how many shirts he needs to give, which is to say, less than you might think. I think he also gets away with a lot of this because he's convinced everyone that he's nuts. He definitely does cultivate an air of madcap whimsy. And I'm not sure he is. I think he's a lot smarter than he lets on, certainly. I think he may be manipulating every single person that he comes in contact with by being unabashedly weird. There's probably some of that. And he's also someone who just follows his gut. 
He doesn't overthink things, and he tends to understand when to get out of his own way. Unlike some people we can name in this story. Yeah. So there's a thing that Elodin says to Ari that I find very funny. I expect Quoth is a nicer person than I am. And Ari is just like, yeah, obviously. I think Ari is the one person that Quoth is uniquely just nice to. Like, there's no sarcasm, there's no biting back, there's no anger or frustration expressed in her direction. And there's also no expectation of reciprocity. With most other people, Quoth expects that his behavior will yield some kind of reward. He is nice to people who are nice to him. He's nice to them because they're nice to him. Whereas with Ari, he's nice to her because, well, he's nice to her. I think there's some of that, but I also think that because he views her as childlike, he might be less willing to bark back. Part of it is, I think, because he doesn't really believe that she has anything that can hurt him. He feels safe around her. After this whole exchange is when Elodin finds out that Kvoth has named her Ari. Ari explains that it's her name, and Elodin says, Is it now? Kvoth gave it to me. Isn't it marvelous? And Elodin's response is, It's a lovely name, and it suits you. It does. I like that so much. It's like having a flower in my heart, as opposed to a harp. <laughs> and if your name is getting too heavy, you should have Kvoth give you a new one. Elodin nods again and takes a bite of his sinus, and he starts looking thoughtfully at Kvoth. And I think this is really an example of Kvoth as namer. This is Kvoth naming someone because it feels right without spending too much time overthinking it. Just looking at someone and really looking at who they are and then finding something that fits. Not by thinking too much about alliteration or references or anything like that. He's just thinking, you look like an Ari to me. How does that sound? You know? It's a lot like Kethalen. Yeah. It's that spontaneous understanding. And I think this is what convinces Elodin that maybe there's something to this Kvoth character after all. After they finish their dinner, Elodin and Kvoth take their leave. Elodin asks how long Kvoth's been coming to see Ari. About half a year is the response. And Elodin reveals that he has been trying to look after her for a few years, trying to get to know her, trying to understand this little creature that he discovered and make sure that she's okay. And of course, Kvothe is suspicious about his motives. I'm not. I think that Elodin is attracted to broken people. Hence, why he's in a situation where he's talking with and walking with Kvothe. Yeah, Elodin is surprisingly caring about the vulnerable. We look at how he thinks of Alder Wynn, for instance, who is stuck in Haven and really struggling and having a bad time. Elodin goes and checks on him. I think Elodin feels some responsibility for him and his condition, but beyond that, has compassion for him just as a person. I kind of get the sense that maybe he feels some responsibility for Ari's situation as well. Both offers up, she's my friend. 
and I don't have enough friends that I could bear to lose one. Not her. Promise me that you won't tell anyone about her or bundle her off to Haven. It's not the right place for her. I need you to promise me. And I love Elodin's response. I'm hearing an or else here. <laughs> A lot of people wouldn't actually just say that. But Elodin does not seem to have a filter between his brain and his mouth. Now, whether or not that's true, eh. Like I say, I think he knows exactly how much he can get away with in a given situation. And I think also sometimes being able to reveal that he catches on to a lot of hidden undercurrents has its own value. Of course, the plumb bob rears its ugly head when Elodin kind of points out the or else. Kvothe thinks about knocking Elodin off the roof. Like, seriously thinks about it. And going down with him, for that matter. That's true. He also knows enough about himself to say, I'll probably do something stupid beyond all mortal ken. And both of us will end up the worse for it. Yeah. Elodin looked at Kvothe and goes... What a remarkably honest threat. Normally they're much more growlish and grisly than that. And I think that this is part of how Elodin is proving that he is a namer. Because those are words that sound like what he means, but aren't words. Gristly, says Quoth. Don't you mean grisly? And Elodin's response is both. Usually there's a lot of, I'll break your knees, I'll break your neck. Makes me think of gristle, like when you're boning a chicken. It's some good wordplay, and I think Elodin can never resist wordplay. Well, it's kind of like that SciShow video that I showed you about Kiki and Boba. Which one sounds sharp and which one sounds rounded? Grisly and growlish sound right, even as they don't, quote, exist. And I like that Pat Rothfuss brought in some very clear explanations without spelling it out as, this is how Elodin is a namer. This is just Elodin's thought process, and it's not concerned about the prescriptive sense of language. So there are prescriptivists and descriptivists when it comes to linguistic theory. Prescriptivists basically say that words have a specific meaning as codified through some organizing board or document, whether this is the French Language Association or the Oxford English Dictionary or something like that. Whereas descriptivists tend think that language is something that's invented on the fly and that is evolved to suit the needs of people using it. That it grows and changes and that the business of codifying it is in some respects foolish and oftentimes discriminatory. In this case, Quoth is the one playing prescriptivist because he's young and it's really easy to go well actually. The Oxford English Dictionary defines whatever as and in this case, Elodin's able to say, nah, I just like the sound of it. This just feels right. I think there is something to Elodin's way of thinking about language 
and how it fits with the world. Elden conveyed his meaning perfectly clearly, even if he was using a word that maybe Quoth would disagree with the choice. <laughs> In retrospect, though, it made perfect sense. So at this point, also, Elodin promises not to send anyone for Ari, and Quoth insists upon even more binding promises. And Elodin says, I swear it on my mother's milk. I swear on my name and my power. I swear it by the ever-moving moon. And then they start walking again. And then Quoth starts saying, well, clearly Elodin is better off than I am. Ari needs things. Ari needs warmer clothes. And Elodin fights back a little bit and says, but she won't take them from me. I leave things for her, but she won't touch them. If I give them to you, will you pass them along? Which is such a lovely kindness. And then in that case, she also needs about 20 talents, a ruby the size of an egg, and a new set of engraving tools. Both. Does she also need loot strings too? <laughs> right. <laughs> and without missing a beat, Foth is like, yeah, two pair, if you can get them. And then some more kind of confusion over language. Why Ari? And Quoth misunderstands the question and answers, but she doesn't have anyone else. And then Eldon's like, nah, uh, 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 uh. why'd you pick that name? Because she's so bright and sweet. She doesn't have any reason to be, but she is. Ari means sunny. Which I like anyway, because we've got the sun, Ari, and the moon, Denna. And Elodin's just like, in what language? So this happens again. Same thing with Ketsalin. Siaru, I think. No, it's not. <laughs> of course it's not. And then Quoth is like, well, I must have learned it somewhere. Must be something real. But before we can go too deep into this, Elodin offers him a spot in his class. It occurs to me that it might not be a complete waste of your time. Oh my goodness, do I love this character. <laughs> yeah, Elodin is the sort of person who is exceedingly capable of seeing things as they are, not as how we think they ought to be. And I think that is how he views people too. In this case, I think he's recognizing that Quoth hit on a good name, even if he doesn't understand why. And I think he's got a little bit of a sense that, yeah, okay, this kid can think on his feet. He can do what I need him to do. I just got to get him to get out of his own goddamn way. And out of his head. Yep. This brings us to the revelation that even though it has been half a year or more, Quoth is still banned from the archives because he almost burned them down because he's an idiot. I love his response. That is utter horse shirt. You're my Rilar now. <laughs> yeah, at this point, Elodin is full mama bearing. <laughs> and at that point, they basically make a Batman-style visit to Master Lauren, who is surprisingly unsurprised by this. So when you say Batman-style, I kind of picture, like, the Adam West Batman, not the Christian Bale Batman. A <laughs> little bit. I'm just mostly thinking because... Elodin doesn't really come to people's doors. He comes to their windows. <laughs> and Lauren isn't surprised. Like, 
if someone knocked on our window, I think I'd at least be like, what? And he's just like, eh, it's Tuesday. This is just perfectly normal. And I really love, you know, the whole, well, how long were you planning to keep him out anyway? A year and a day. Oh, just to be traditional, huh? Come on, just give him back in. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got one of my favorite bits between Elodin and Lauren ever. Tomes is for feckless tits who can't chew their own food, Elodin said dismissively. My boy is a Rolar. He has the feck of 20 men. <laughs> he needs to explore the stacks and discover all manner of useless things. And Lauren is just very frank and says, I don't really care about him. I care about my archives. And then... Elodin proceeds to promise Lauren, I will let you cut off his thumbs if he does something stupid. Okay, deal. Can you just imagine both following Elodin and just going, what the hell? What? What was that? What just happened? <laughs> it's like, what? I've solved your problem. You can't offer to let him cut off my thumbs. He goes, are you planning on breaking the rules again? No, but, but... Well, then you don't have anything to worry about. But I'd still step carefully if I were you. You can never tell when he's kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Lauren has a very lovely dry sense of humor that is so dry that only he gets it. And I think he's fine with that. I do too. So then we've got more accounting, and then we also have Kvothe signing up for classes. This is riveting stuff, guys. It's only then that Kvothe realizes that he doesn't know the name of Elodin's class. He leaves through the ledger until he spots Elodin's name, and then the title in fresh dark ink, Introduction to Not Being a Stupid Jackash. And if there's anyone who needs that class, it's Kvothe. He sighed and penned his name in the single blank space beneath. Which tells me that Elodin probably has a different name for each person taking the class. <laughs> it, okay, so hear me out. Have you seen those word search thingies that are like the first five or like what your year is going to be like? So maybe searching for Elodin's class is like the first one you find is the one that you needed. That's actually pretty much exactly what he would do. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most Elodin thing ever. <laughs> because he's clearly taken the measure of each of his students. And he has placed his class name where he knows it will mean something to them just because he understands the way they think and has managed to tailor the name of the class for each one of those students. There's got to be something. There just has to. That's just amazing. The next chapter starts with a lovely callback to when Kvothe was sitting in the cart with Abinthi and the donkeys. And he was thinking, I want to learn Taberlin the Great style magic. And now he's like, I get to do that now. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. He's got so many expectations for something 
that is not going to happen the way that he thinks it will. And it's amazing. But this whole passage, all I have in my notes to myself are, Senpai, notice me! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's over the moon. Which, he gets a quick dose of reality when he walks into the fishery the next morning. Because Kilvin wants to see him, and not for a good reason. Nope. Like, we've got all of the standard, I went in trying to find what I could do to make the most money, and then, Kvothe, get in here. Over here. <laughs> kind of is what's in my head. It's like, uh. And if Kilvin wants you like that, like, I would be shirting my pants. Yeah, I uh, kind of get sort of a Superintendent Chalmers Principal Skinner vibes out of this interaction. I got a little of that too. So Kilvin proceeds to tell Quoth of a disturbing story that he has heard of a young girl who came in to the fishery asking to speak with the wizard who sold her a charm. First of all, Kilvin doesn't like being called a wizard. Right, and secondly, Quoth is confused because he's like, a charm for what? And Kilvin's response is like, charms for love or luck, to help a woman catch with child or to prevent the same. Amulets against demons and the like. Can such a thing be made? No. <laughs> That's why we don't sell them. <laughs> right. Kilvin's reputation matters to him, damn it. Kilvin is also concerned not just about his own reputation, but the reputation of the university. And he knows that if you have people out there diluting the work, or the, the brand, so to speak, it's not too far from these people are super useful to these people are mucking about with things they ought not and are maybe doing so for nefarious purposes. And then it doesn't take a very huge leap to we should burn them. Torches, pitchforks, you name it. And... Kvothe's stress response, or at least relief response, reminds me a little of mine, which is he laughs, like a huge belly laugh, which is kind of the thing that happens to me. Some people scream on roller coasters. I laugh on roller coasters. You dragged me onto the Tower of Terror. I kind of wanted to go like I intellectually wanted to go. And at the time I was like, but I really don't want to go. Because I don't really want to, I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of resisting this one, but I want to, so I did. And then as we dropped, I laughed. I was just laughing the whole time. That was a lot of fun. You were so giggly afterwards. <laughs> a little giddy. It was fun. It was. I mean, it was controlled danger, but it was still like, ah. I do love that Quoth's response is, Master Kilvin, look at me. If I was tricking gullible townsfolk out of their money, I wouldn't have to wear secondhand homespun. To Kilvin's credit, I don't think he ever really noticed. Kilvin is not the sort of person who thinks too much about things like status. I think Kilvin is also aware that just because someone doesn't spend a lot on clothing doesn't mean that they don't have use for a lot of money. And then Kvothe goes on to say, I am well aware that it would fall under fraudulent purveyance. And I wouldn't risk that because Quoth does not have money with which to get himself out of trouble. And above all else, I think he knows all of the rules because he needs to know what ones he can bend and break. 
so that he doesn't get royally screwed. I do love that Kilvin's thought is a member of the Arcanum avoids such behavior because it is wrong, not because there's too much risk. So like there is, I'm going to not do this because it is the wrong thing to do. And then there is, I'm not going to do this because I'm going to be punished. So I think really what we're looking at is a difference between consequentialism and deontology. There we go. Deontology is where you have an ethical code that is built around right and wrong and has nothing to do with the consequences of those actions. Whereas consequentialism essentially is almost entirely focused on the consequences and outcomes of a given set of actions. Now, if you actually talk to people, they tend to be some kind of a mix of both of those. People look at consequences, but they also recognize that you have to have rules. And oftentimes your rules, you kind of figure out if they work based on how the consequences of having them turn out. Most people are not purely deontologists or purely consequentialists. And then there are some folks who are neither. But I think that things change from being a child to being an adult, where you're going to be more of a consequentialist as a kid. It's going to be more of a threat to say, if you do this, I will do this. And that's you earning a punishment versus as an adult choosing to do something for different reasons other than you will be punished for it. Yeah, it's the difference between saying, I don't want to steal because I might get caught and then sent to jail versus I don't want to steal because stealing is harmful to someone else and I would be hurting that person if I did that. And then we get down to brass tacks a little bit and Kvothe replying kind of sadly, Master Kilvin, if you had that much faith in my moral grounding, we wouldn't be having this conversation, which is quite true, but it's different than the discussion we were having. It's all well and good to expect that good people will do good for good reason. But also, if you're a realist about things, not everyone will. The people who are fair-minded will suspect everyone, and the people who are less fair-minded will suspect certain people. In this case, Kilvin says, I admit I would not expect such of you, but I've been surprised before, and I would be remiss in my duty if I did not investigate such things. He has the sense that he needs to at least understand the full story, because there may be something he doesn't understand. And he wants to get Quoth's perspective on this. Which is, I think, why he is asking questions instead of making accusations. And then we've got a question that colloquially people will ask or say, in my honest opinion, or do you want my honest opinion, or whatever. And of course it's your honest opinion. It's just filler words. But this might also be an instance where Kilvin is not a native speaker of, what are we? Common. Common? Yeah. That's... Anyway. <laughs> and he's just like, always, always be honest. I expect someone is trying to get me into trouble. Which if it was anyone else, I might not agree with him. And I might not believe that this is an accurate and or fair statement. That said, Kilvin has to be aware of, oh yeah, you're dealing with a particularly litigious 
person who I have seen bring you up on the horns multiple times for things that don't matter. So, okay, yeah, I believe that. <laughs> At the end, though, of this little section, I trust I will not be troubled by a horde of pregnant women waving iron pendants and cursing your name. <laughs> uh, I love Master Kilvin. All right. On to Eladin's class. The first day of introduction to not being a stupid jackass. So there are seven students in this, which seems fortuitous. Yeah, so I actually have notes about this one. Okay. So there are seven of us in all. First was Fenton, who was my friendly rival from Advanced Sympathy. So another very smart person. Fella, who is also quite smart. And she arrived with Brienne. A pretty girl of about 20 with sandy hair cut in the fashion of a boy's. I don't know what that means because I also have short hair and short hair versus long hair can go screw itself because Quoth's hair is probably down to his butt by now. And in that day and age, most men wore their hair long. <laughs> At least in the day and age that this is trying to emulate. Yes. And then Jarrett was a shy Modegan that I'd seen in the Medica. There is a young woman with bright blue eyes and honey-colored hair, and her name is Anissa. Turns out she had previously dated Simon. And then we've got Yuresh, who is nearly 30, so non-traditional student, and a full Eltha, and he is apparently from a place called Lanot. But if you do the math on this, there are three women and four men in a school where there are 10 men to one woman. So Eladin has chosen for his class a disproportionate, from the whole student body, number of women, which also indicates that maybe women are better at naming than men are. Well, let's also think about how many mothers are the first people to name their children. There is a, an element there. You have also just, I think, Eladin is not the sort of person to get hung up on ideas of patriarchy, that men are somehow superior. So he's probably looking at who's actually going to be good at this. He's not sitting there thinking of balancing the numbers. He's thinking, who can I get? Who's actually going to be able to do this? There is the other possibility of when you have a group of people, this is normal for a lot of movies, narratives, books, whatever. If you have an odd-numbered group of people, Almost inevitably, it will be split down the middle, men to women, and then the less number is women and the more number is men. So for seven, four to three sounds right. For five, three to two sounds right. For a group of three people, two men and a woman. Because you can't just not have women, except you can, because that happens all the time too. And it's interesting to see more current movies being produced actually with not only women leads but women sidekicks and girls being chosen as the gender of the companions so we just watched raya and the last dragon the number of women characters named women characters who have speaking roles and action roles is amazingly high I think in the group of people that get gathered to do the majority of the action push, there are only two men, or a man and a boy. And that's pretty awesome. 
I'm not saying that every movie has to be like that, but what I'm saying is that when so much of our media has been default two men, one girl, or three men, two girls, whatever, three men, two women. And I think one of the things that was refreshing, but also mildly jarring about the second Star Wars movie in the new trilogy was the number of female companions and sidekicks and the lead that were present. It wasn't even half. It really wasn't. But there were more of them. And they all talked to one another. And they all passed the Bechdel test. And once you get that mix lifting up more women, it feels weird, but it's nice. It feels more real. It feels like what I wish real was. Yeah, having a little bit more equity and agency for non-male characters is always a good thing. Now what we need is more non-binary and or agender people. Also more trans people in general. Soapbox done, let's keep going. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> so, Elodin naturally is late to his first day of class. Um, that implies that he ever intended to be there at the time that the class started. Let me put it this way. I would be really weirded out if Elodin showed up right at the supposed start of class. All right, so I know you went to a different type of high school, but if the teacher showed up late to their class, at what point do you go and say, well, I guess we're not having class? It's easy. It's 15 minutes. This is also true in college. That's what I was about to say. That's kind of, yeah. I actually had a philosophy professor who was once 15 minutes late because he didn't remember when the daylight savings time kicked in. Ah. And I stuck around for him to show up. I didn't have anywhere to be, so I was like, sure, let's see what happens. And it was one of my favorite classes, too. And typically when you get a professor who's that late, that usually means that the remaining people in the class are usually thinned out. And so whatever happens next is going to be interesting. Because one, there's automatically something that's different. Two, it's smaller. That means people are a little more relaxed and informal. And three, you have something you can hold over the professor's head. Nice. Yeah, as a TA for one of my favorite professors... I've been texted with a, could you please just go down to the classroom and tell everyone I'm going to be about five minutes later than I thought I was going to be so that they don't all leave. And I'm like, sure. All I do is grade for you, but I will go downstairs and tell them that <laughs> you overslept. I do think that Elodin's goal here is to get his students to get to know each other. He also seems, throughout this whole thing, to have the desire for his students to come to the conclusion that they should work together without telling them that they should work together because they should work together. Everything Elodin does is an elaborate object lesson. <laughs> so when Elodin comes in, he gives them two rules. First thing, we don't talk about Fight Club. No, no, no not that one. The first rule is do what I say to the best of your ability. And then, believe me when I tell you certain things, even if they are not true, until I tell you to stop. Which is actually what Abanthi did for Kvothe 
when he's like, do you believe that the rock will float up? Yep. And then the things to remember. First of all, names shape us, and we shape our names in turn. So Phoenix is not the name that I was given as a baby. But the name that I was saddled with as a child has since become synonymous with let me speak to your manager. And I'm very glad that I changed my name before that happened. My name is Phoenix. If you have sussed out what my dead name is, don't ever call me that. It's not my legal name anymore. Don't care. Meanwhile, Phoenix fits you like a glove. And it's something that you know works on so many different levels for you. It shapes you. You are a better person as Phoenix than you were under that other name. And so one thing to remember is that while it's really easy to look and say, if someone is trans, of course they're going to change their name, which isn't always true for one thing. And sometimes like maybe people who are not trans or not within an LGBTQIA community or not in a place where it's typical for you to use your middle name or something like that. You really don't need to introduce yourself as the name that you were given as a child if it no longer fits you. You don't have to have a different reason other than it doesn't fit you any longer and you don't like it. Also, to get into it a little bit more, Phoenix is not a great name to have on like LinkedIn because it's one of those that's like, oh, come on, you just made that up, which I would counter as oh, come on, everyone just makes up their name or everyone's parent has made up their name. But I do have what Will calls my Midgard name, which is my name for normals, which is Jules. I will not respond to it because that is also not what I consider my name. But it's a legal name that sounds more normal for someone that looks like me. And the biggest revelation with this is that at one point, I was lamenting the fact that Phoenix isn't a terribly professional sounding name. And Will pointed out that I don't need to keep my dead name as my legal name just because Phoenix doesn't suit a professional persona. And that was the biggest like, what moment. Oh my goodness, you're right. It doesn't fit me. Why keep it? I hate it. Why keep it? And then we... Spent a couple of weeks kind of mulling over names that would suit me more because it was a goal of mine to have something somewhat gender neutral that sounded, quote, normal for someone who looks like me. And Jules Verne, and it just is a neat name, and I like it. Legal paperwork later, and ta-da, my name is Phoenix. <laughs> The second thing to remember is that even the simplest name is so complex that your mind could never begin to feel the boundaries of it, let alone understand it well enough for you to speak it. Yet we do, routinely. All proper nouns. Right. We speak names all the time. We speak words all the time. And we don't always understand all the deepest meanings of every word we speak. Think about it. Have you ever stopped to try and think about how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Actually, yes. And it's because when I was in high school, I got pulled into this weird little assembly thing that I didn't know what 
was happening or whatever. And it was just two presenters trying to get all of us to explain to them how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's sort of an introductory technical writing exercise as well. It turns out you have to write a lot of steps down, even as it is pretty simple. And all of that means that things that we do all the time are things that we do without thinking. I mean, just the simple act of walking down the stairs has all sorts of unconscious things that we have to do that we do without any problem. We don't have to sit here thinking, I am going to put one foot in front of the other. I'm going to lower this leg. I'm going to think about breathing. I'm going to do all this other stuff. Well, got to make sure my heart's still beating too. No, we don't think about any of that. We just think, oh, I'm going to go over there, walk down the stairs. You just do it. You have all the privilege of somebody who does not have chronic pain. Oh, I'm starting to learn about chronic pain. (laughs) I've been dealing with chronic pain for uh, almost 15 years at this point. Going down the stairs is a much more involved exercise for me than it is for you. And I think that that's a lesson that could be learned by more people and a lesson in empathy. So then, to illustrate his point, Eladin asks them to calculate the precise trajectory and angle that a rock has to be thrown from one person to another, speed, all of that, and then put it into words and math. And everyone just starts going with what they know. Like, Yuresh, who turns out is kind of a mathematical prodigy, is going into all of these complex equations and has all sorts of algebraic formulas and everything that he's plugging in. And everyone is just trying to get all these calculations correct. And then Eladin calls some runner who's just walking by. The runners always seem to be walking by whenever Eladin needs one for a convenient demonstration, by the way. (laughs) You ever notice that? Do you think they just kind of hang out out there just to see if they get called in? Or there are just a ton of them. That could be. And so when you've got so many of them saturating the hallways, you're probably going to be able to poke your head out and say, hey, you. So Eladin just tosses the rock to the boy and the boy just catches it. Then Eladin asks, did he need to calculate the exact trajectory that it was going to come in, the right angle and the speed and everything so that he could catch it? His waking mind didn't need to do any of that. His sleeping mind did. Your sleeping mind is doing all of that. It kind of reminds me of, you know, every time there's a major sporting event that people aren't super familiar with. Like, in the United States, soccer is not as popular as it is elsewhere in the world. But without fail, there is always a science video that comes out. Now we're going to talk about the science of soccer. And then you'll have some egghead talk about... When so-and-so kicks the ball, the ball is traveling at this speed. He has to hit it exactly, and he knows that it'll go at this precise angle and calculation. No, I guarantee you that Luka Modric is not sitting there running all these complex calculations. He has just practiced kicking the ball so often that he knows exactly what the right space is to kick it at, what part of his foot he needs to use, and then how to just do that through practice and repetition The ones that make me the happiest, because I do watch these science videos, are the ones with an actual athlete there who is explaining their process. 
let's put it this way, they're not running the numbers. They are perhaps thinking about it visually. So they're thinking about, okay, I need to move my leg this hard. They're thinking about feel and direction as opposed to numbers. I think there's also a lot of proprioception in there. So a knowledge of how their body works, a knowledge of how the feel of when their foot lands a certain way or what part of their foot needs to touch the ball or how their kick needs to feel. The numbers themselves don't matter, but the numbers are created by that repetition, by that knowledge of how, when you got it right, how that feels. Yeah. Elodin breaks in and says, this is the problem that numbers face. We must understand things that are beyond our understanding. I mean, think about something like zero as a concept. Think about explaining zero as a concept. Right, because it's something that was not always a concept that people used or thought of. And having a mathematical representation of nothing. Everything else was something. Well, back to the class a little bit. He gives them five minutes before choosing to encourage them to work together. Mind you, there are no rules in this class. They should have been working together in the first place, but they don't. Rugged individualism and the classic demotivational poster of none of us are as dumb as all of us kind of just breaks down when you actually get people with disparate abilities and an expertise in different things together in a group and let them work on the parts that they are good at, but also yes anding. It kind of feels like a day in Elodin's class is like watching an old episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway, where the rules are made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> and even though nominally it's a competition, they're all really working together to improvise and have fun, but they're also having to really listen to one another and to respond and work as a group. But in no way is this actually a competition. Well, and that's just it. This whole idea that any of this is being measured, that they're being weighed or anything like that. Oh, they are. They are. But let me put it this way. Putting numerical scores on it? I'm saying that they are being weighed and measured in a way that they don't expect. I'm saying that Elodin is probably taking their measure as they are wholesale doing the wrong thing. Almost certainly. But it's not in a competitive sense. He is not sitting there saying there must be winners and losers. No, this isn't advanced sympathy. This is a case where there are a group of people. Some of them may be winners. Some of them may be losers. And there is no hard number for either category. So back to the lesson, which is, can you tell me with certainty which way or how the stone will fall? And we've got Quoth, who's, I hate problems I cannot solve, says so much about him. And then after a moment, Fella spoke up and says, we don't know how the stone will fall. And Elodin finally goes, yes, exactly. You don't. That's fine. That's normal. That's real. Thanks for being honest. Ding, ding, ding. I mean, this is something that's actually kind of rooted in quantum theory. Take Plinko. 
it is something that is governed by purely physical laws, right? And physical laws are purely deterministic, right? And yet, if you drop 30 balls down a Plinko chamber, one right after the other, you cannot predict which way any given one of those is going to fall, what route they're going to take. They can literally go anywhere because turns out that everything is not certain. It's actually probabilistic. You can have an educated guess based on all the mathematical and physical matter equations and velocity and everything that you can think of. You can probably get close to what it will probably be a probably higher number than average amount of the time or whatever. You can describe a bell curve but you have no clue of knowing where on the bell curve it will land. You also have absolutely no idea what the outliers will be. Have you ever just accidentally dropped a bouncy ball somewhere and then it go everywhere in the room and land perfectly in a cup next to where it started? No, I'm sure that there's math that could possibly make that happen or I could just keep doing it over and over again, hitting this in the same spot over and over again, and eventually it will bounce weird. Yep. And meanwhile, we get to the first real assignment, which is read a book and tell me what you think about it after you find it in the stacks. Which is another exercise in please work together, and then they don't. Naturally. Well, and as we understand from Fella's description of the library, finding a book in the stacks is no easy task. And... Elodin even admits that there's a couple that he's not found in the stacks. And that's probably the point, because he wants to know, can you find it? I want to read it. Or I don't want to read it. He hasn't read any of these. This is not about the books. It's about the process. I do have a note here, though, that everything that we have learned now in Elodin's class is much like what Abanthi taught Kvothe as a kid, and he is forgotten by now. Much like we have kind of forgotten about the bits of the story that are Kvothe's childhood. This is a refresher on that. And it's something Kvothe has needed to. He's gotten so hung up in his goals that he's forgotten his basics. And so with that, I think actually we're at a good spot to talk about our Frenemos of the week. Who'd you pick? Recency bias is probably playing a big part in this because I didn't plan one. And while I'd love to say Elodin... I kind of don't want to. I want to say Fella, because she's the one who finally admits that they don't have an answer that they can calculate. And I bet in no small part was kind of the driving force in letting everyone else be secure in the knowledge that it is okay to tell Elodin we don't know the answer. I think that having the answer of I don't know when you don't know is so very, very smart. I've said this before. I think it was my words last week. But admitting that you don't know something is great. It is the soul of Socratic wisdom. So for those of you who have not followed ancient Greek philosophy, the story goes that Socrates was judged by the Oracle of Delphi to be the wisest man in Athens. And the reason for this was because unlike everyone else in Athens, he knew what he did not know. There are a lot of things Socrates didn't know, and that was actually kind of the point. Compared to the artisans, the teachers, the scholars, 
who allowed their expertise in one particular field to trick them into thinking they knew about other fields. This is much like Twitter lawyers and Facebook doctors and Instagram epidemiologists. Yep. We see this all the time. Also, anytime science communicators try to talk about philosophy. Yeah, I'm calling you out. You guys are bad at it. Oh, so you're saying that Crash Course Philosophy is... Um... Hooey. <laughs> Hank Green, I love you, but your knowledge of science does not equip you to talk about philosophy. I'm sure that he had a whole bunch of philosophy majors contribute to the scripts. But that doesn't mean that he has a whole lot of credibility in my mind. Elitist. Look, this is my area of expertise. <sighs> and yet you absolutely adored The Good Place. I did. Because they also admitted that, yeah, we didn't actually read what we owe each other. We just thought it sounded cool. Speaking of The Good Place, we saw the set from The Good Place in an episode of Star Trek Voyager... And I just kind of squeed and, and clapped and was happy. Yeah, it was pretty surreal. I was like, Will, do you recognize this? And he's like, uh, no. And I said, what if all the shop names had puns in them? <laughs> that was pretty amazing. Anyway, I think that one thing we really, really do need to learn from examples from other people or just internalize is that it's okay to say, I don't know. Because if I can admit that I don't know something, but hey, maybe I would like to, then it opens up the possibility of me learning something. Instead of, I don't know, but I feel like if I say I don't know, people will look down on me and therefore I have to pretend that I know in order for them not to look down on me. And then when I screw it all up, continue bluffing? Eh? There's no winning in that cycle. No. No, there's not. But if, let's say, something in the house breaks. Let's say the toilet breaks. I am a much more physically inclined, like, geometry and physics and all that wonderfulness. I understand how things work together, and I've fixed a few toilets in my day. You don't have that same knowledge because somehow whenever the toilet breaks, it's not around you <laughs> and I get to fix it regardless or somebody else in your life has fixed it before. It is better to me if you wait and ask for help and say, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Can you teach me? Than it would be for the toilet to overflow and explode or continue running or break worse. But barreling through when you've got something that could damage everything around it and cause a massive headache is so much worse than just admitting, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Could you show me? Good pick. Thank you. So now it is time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and expand our understanding of the world with an interesting fact. It's my turn this week, and I think I've got a good one. Oh, you do, do you? So, uh, we all know that cats of all shapes and sizes like boxes or even two-dimensional shapes like squares. And we've seen this in species ranging from your usual domestic house cat all the way up to Bengal tigers. However, a new study finds that our cat friends may even see squares where none exist, 
just like us. So in a new citizen science study called If I Fits, I Sits, a citizen science investigation into illusory contour susceptibility in domestic cats, researcher Gabriella Smith asked her human friends to see how their kitty housemates responded to a series of shapes taped to a mat on the floor, including a solid square outline, the Kanisha square illusion, which is a pattern of Pac-Man-like shapes that fool the human brain into seeing a fully outlined square, and as a control example, a Kanisha shape, but one where the illusion isn't possible. So ultimately, 30 owners were able to successfully complete the experiment in full, which involved six days of trial. Of these, nine cats were cooperative, meaning that they actually made a choice at least once during the trials. <laughs> And out of the 16 times a choice was made, cats sat on the square eight times, the square-like illusion seven times, and the control illusion once. Naturally, of course, this represents a small sample, and cats are notoriously fickle when it comes to participating in behavioral research. But there definitely seems to be a pattern here in that they do seem to see squares and feel more comfortable sitting on them. It's the same reason why, for instance, our little podcat Leela loves to sit on boxes or like pieces of paper on the floor. Even if there's nothing around her, she just sits on that. She also sits on the little cardboard round from one of our little roundabout toys. She'll sit on the roundabout toy to make sure that Sokka can't play with it. She sat on my folded shirt yesterday. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the researchers don't know exactly why cats are like this, but they hope to gather more examples of this square-seeking behavior in cats as well as dogs in a new study, which is actually open right now. So if you want to try this for yourself and maybe even contribute your own data with your furry friends and co-workers, we're going to include the link to the website for this study in the podcast description. And meanwhile, if you just want to look at cute animals, you can also check out the social hashtag SeeingThings2021 on Twitter. I think that's really fascinating. And we're going to do that, aren't we? Maybe. If you wanna. I wanna. <laughs> so now I have a question. Will Sokka cooperate? I don't know. He might. He might. Leela almost certainly will. Quite probably. <laughs> So with that, I think it's time for our thing of the week. Alrighty. So it's a video game. Partly because I've been playing Ori and the Will of the Wisps, which is the thing that I am recommending. I definitely recommend playing Ori and the Blind Forest first. Ori and the Will of the Wisps is similarly punishing and a great continuation on the series. Usually a sequel will fall flat for some reason or not feel right in the grand scheme of things or have a lot more criticism. And honestly, my only criticism might be because I switched from it being on my PC to it being on a Switch. I know that there were problems with bugs when it initially launched, which is why I didn't play it upon launch. I've owned it on my PC for a long time and then I just kind of broke down and got it for the Switch because it's easier in the scheme of it's now on the TV and I don't have to try to play on my laptop. Ori and the Blind Forest was the first game that I have played that is a challenging as crap platformer that is just so, so pretty. 
it is gorgeous art. And if anyone tries to argue that games are not art, I would just screenshot that. Also, all of the mechanics that are in Ori and the Blind Forest eventually regain in Ori and the Will of the Wisps. You start off with a single jump and a lot of bits and pieces where you get anticipation, where you can know that you're going to get an ability and that you will eventually be able to do something else awesome. But there is a thing that I like to do in these kinds of challenging platformers that I did with not only Ori and the Blind Forest and Ori and the Will-o'-the-Wisps, but also a game called Dust and Elysian Tale, where I try to manipulate the physics inside the game of the main character enough so that I essentially can either fly or like air step or something up to platforms I'm not supposed to get to yet. And sometimes this bites me in the butt. And sometimes it causes me to swear loudly constantly until I get out of the spikes, goddammit. I mean, you like this game, don't you? Yes. Yes, I do. And if you've played Ori in the Blind Forest or if you've played other challenging platformers, you'll also know that there is a mechanic in a lot of these games where eventually you will be chased by lava or water or a monster or something. <laughs> And that happened this morning. I triggered an event and I was doing pretty well. I was in the zone. I was excited and this was going nicely because, you know, the last time I played one of these games, I spent a very long time and died very, very many, many, many times trying to get up a tree. And this time I'm just trying to like run ahead of water. And as I'm playing, Will just looks up. Well, that looks exciting. And my, and my concentration just broke to pieces. And the cat woke up and stood in front of the television. Look, Sokka didn't wake up because I said that looks exciting. Sokka woke up because you started yelling at me. And that was what did it. I was yelling and laughing at you. Very loudly, though. That's fair. You didn't have to do that. Yeah, but you didn't have to say, well, that looks exciting. Was it exciting? Does that matter? Answer the question. <laughs> it was. I was simply then stating of that was that it was. <laughs> it was an honest description. At a very inappropriate time. <laughs> Now, a little bit of context. Will is a person that will hand me the controller whenever there needs to be, like, an escape from lava or an escape from rushing water. I don't do platforming. <laughs> and I do it badly. But one thing I really like about Ori and the Blind Forest is that, and Ori and the Will of the Wisps, is that the developers didn't put you on a game over screen in a... This is going to take forever and encourage you to stop playing. They made it really, really quick to get back into the action. And it makes it so seamless. It makes it this challenge that I need to get done. That it doesn't punish you. It just makes you do it again. And I think that that was such a smart decision. Like, I'm having a problem where when I first played the other game, I was on a... Xbox controller 
and now I'm on the Switch controller and they are not the same. And so sometimes I hit the wrong button and when you're hitting the wrong button in a platformer that quite literally everything around you is spikes or rushing water or death, <laughs> that doesn't work so well. Oops. Oops. Well, that sounds exciting. But I do definitely recommend it. I was never one that was like, hey, I need to play Super Meat Boy. But I get the distinct impression that Ori in the Blind Forest and Ori in the Will of the Wisps, especially played on normal, are kind of in that same punishing yet rewarding platformer genre. But this one is just so pretty and the music is gorgeous. And there's something about it that just... Uh, it's both exciting and relaxing for me, even as I'm swearing at the fact that I just climbed up a wall into a thing of spikes and I'm getting a carnivorous plant shooting yellow balls of energy at me. And every time they do that, I lose my grip on the wall and I fall into poisonous water. And I did say I like this game and I do. So that is what I'm recommending is Ori in the Blind Forest and Ori in the Will of the Wisps. Cool. So now let's move on to our seven words. I believe you had the books this time? I did, and I highlighted a whole ton of them, and I can't decide. Pick three. <laughs> Pick three, says the person who <laughs> consistently <laughs> says way more than three. Yeah, because I write them down. <laughs> I highlight them. This is my book. It's full of yellow and orange highlighter, and the orange highlighter is all seven words. Some of them are less fun than others. I mean, like, Relark Foth, come in, close the door. That's, meh. Well, I know what one I am going to choose. Well, I thought I knew. I was going to choose Introduction to Not Being a Stupid Jackass. But there's also, what the hell? I, what the hell? And Lauren just going, Elodin, what can I do for you? You've had better luck than I have. You know, I'm just as lovely as the moon. But the one that I am going to choose because it makes me laugh and I like the ones that make me laugh. He has the feck of 20 men. <laughs> that is a fun one. I love Elodin. So I had seven words from life and I think these will also make you laugh. Sokka is a bad video game companion. Yeah. And I think that works in multiple ways. One, if Sokka were a companion in a video game... He'd be terrible! Yeah, he'd be the one who constantly is wandering into lava or pulling aggro on an entire dungeon or knocking over some sort of crucial trap. So I can imagine him pulling aggro on an entire dungeon and then running out past the rest of the party. Yep. And then not getting hurt. Yep. He would Leroy Jenkins the entire thing. Yep. And then Bubble Hearth. And also, he does have that habit of when you are playing something where there's critical timing or anything like that, he'll just go sit in front of the TV or he'll just go start screwing around with something to make noise and to bug you, go where he's not supposed to be. 
generally that's the side of the kitchen next to the oven and then he wants to bother the stuff around it or going up on top of the refrigerator to chew on the cabinets or trying to pull the blanket that we have to prevent him from going up on the mantle and then going up on the mantle and trying to chew on the picture frames you get the idea yeah so it was yesterday when you told me that during this whole house hunting project and potential refurnishing project that we have going on that you were counting how many times I would say something about whether or not that would work for the cat. Specifically, the cats would murder that. The cats would go crazy with that. The cats would destroy that. Yes, that. We were at Ikea yesterday and trying to plot out what we could actually get to protect the books from the cats. So like closed off bookcases or in our future or things that we're going to put in specifically cat-free rooms or whatnot. Yeah, it was kind of funny though. I had to laugh. I'm glad that at least one of us was having fun with this. You had fun with it. I did, but I was a little bit miffed that that was what you were doing. Cheeky. And you love it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 13 through 15 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of object lessons. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please take a look at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can find access to our show notes, early access to the podcast, Patreon-exclusive bonus pods, and a whole host of other things that, if you would like to spend money on, we're here for. Excellent. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Yay for another episode where I uh, read it a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. When did we read this? Last week. Was it only last week? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I spent last week doing pod prep, remember? Nope. Obviously not.